From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Newsday columnist Dan Rabib. Welcome, Anita and Dan. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden promised Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky an additional $500 million in aid during their nearly one-hour phone conversation. This as Russian attacks on Ukraine are continuing after Moscow said it would reduce its military activity in some parts of the country. President Biden clarified a statement he made during his whirlwind diplomatic tour of Europe regarding Russian President Vladimir Putin, saying the U.S. does not plan to take Putin out of office. President Biden released a $5.8 trillion budget proposal that reflects an administration grappling with multiple obstacles that include moving past the pandemic, not being able to enact its huge social spending package, and adding Russia's invasion of Ukraine to its national security plate and the Food and Drug Administration's approval of a second coronavirus booster shot for people aged 50 and older poses a challenge to the Biden administration, which will need to work overtime to convince a public that has largely decided to move on from the COVID-19 pandemic. Senator Susan Collins of Maine said she would support Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, becoming the first Republican to back her for confirmation. And the House of Representatives Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol voted to advance contempt of Congress proceedings against two top aides to former President Donald Trump, teeing up possible prosecution by the Department of Justice. And some Democratic lawmakers are calling on Justice Clarence Thomas to resign or face impeachment in wake of explosive reports last week that exposed the Supreme Court justice's wife's efforts to help overturn former President Trump's electoral defeat. Those are the issues, and let's get started. Anita, you were in Brussels and Poland to cover the president's recent diplomatic European trip. Would you say the president's trip was overshadowed by his declaration that Russian President Putin cannot remain in power? Absolutely, I would say yes. In the end, you know, three days of frenzied diplomacy all came down to nine words, which were, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. And I was there actually at the Royal Palace in Warsaw when he uttered those words at the end of his speech. And it was just shocking, honestly. It was quite a moment. One could argue it could be a moment in world history. This might make it into a sentence in one of my great grandkids' history books, because this was such a bold thing to say. And as you see, Joe Biden says he's not walking back the sentiment, but he doesn't want to take Putin out of power. But I think what's really significant about this statement, it's not what Biden said and how the White House is now trying to walk it back. It's that statements like this can take on a life of their own. Consider, for example, Marie Antoinette's Let Them Eat Cake, which is not exactly what she said, incidentally, and it's not exactly how she said it. But in the repetition, in the retelling, these words do take on a life of their own. And it it remains to be seen how this is going to be taken by critics of Putin and, you know, dissidents in Russia and other regimes that might feel threatened by this who really 
realize that the last two times that a U.S. president has called for, in such blunt terms, the departure of a world leader, it has happened in spectacular fashion. I'm talking about Muammar Gaddafi and I'm talking about Saddam Hussein. So these were nine packed words. Well, we all know that those previous cases, Libya and Iraq, are so different because those countries were not nuclear powers. Russia still considered by many to be a superpower. So when the president of the United States says, and even in defending his remarks, that that's the way he feels. He feels that Vladimir Putin should not be the president of Russia. And that's the way he feels that he won't apologize for it. And so everyone in the Biden administration was running around saying, but we don't have any policy of trying to remove the Russian president or of uh, regime change in that country. But It's a strong statement. And the reason that Joe Biden isn't apologizing is because he thinks he reflects what the American people feel now about this war in Ukraine, the aggression by Russia. And Biden is reflecting the emotions that the bad guy, the evil one in this story is Russia's President Putin. I was struck this past Wednesday when U.S. officials said that Putin doesn't really know the truth of what's going on, as though he's been misled by his own advisors and his own military. There, I thought that some U.S. officials are trying to embarrass or humiliate Putin, especially because the very same day, part of British intelligence, the GCHQ, issued publicly the assessment of how badly things are going for the Russians, including Russian troops refusing to carry out orders. And so I think part of this is an information war. There's no way that NATO, including the United States, will send soldiers into Ukraine. But NATO, the West, is fighting an information war, trying to weaken the Russians and hoping that Russia emerges as the loser in this. Absolutely. And I mean, I just want to note that White House officials have been kind of hinting at Putin having lost the plot for some time now. This seems to be an emerging or rather lurking narrative in this conflict. And I think the jury's out on this. It's like watching Hamlet, but with nuclear weapons. I don't think it's productive and I don't think it's fun to like sit here and think about, oh, has Putin lost his mind or not? Because the fact remains he has several thousand nuclear warheads. So it's not a fun game to play. Anita, just because you were with the president, let me ask you, President Biden and the other NATO leaders, would you say they were all on the same page, agreeing that NATO troops must not enter Ukraine? And even airplanes, I guess, uh, warplanes are not going to be given to Ukraine. But standing together, they're willing to spend a lot more money on weapons and other assistance to Volodymyr Zelensky's government. I think in public, yes, the leaders do appear to be extremely united. And there was a marked distinction between what happened in Brussels and what happened in Warsaw, because you could tell that there was between the Polish government and the American government some points of disagreement. As we recall, the Polish government has offered to send their old Russian fighter jets over to the Ukrainians and the U.S. rebuffed that. So there's definitely a lot of behind the scenes differences of opinion. But in person, and especially notably at NATO headquarters, there was the appearance of absolute unity in lockstep. I mean, they may as well have like come out with matching friendship bracelets. Maybe that would have been a nice visual reminder if they'd done that. So I think it's interesting that, you know, NATO's trying to look extremely, extremely allied, but it's clear that countries do have different perspectives, which makes sense. 
because the city that we visited in Poland, Zeszow, is two hours from the Ukrainian border. I mean, how would you feel if this were happening literally in your backyard? Also, in the recent conversation between President Biden and Ukrainian's President Zelensky, outside of the additional funding that they're receiving from the U.S., were there any new revelations? We got a glimmer of how the peace talks are going, which is to say not very well, which is to be expected, I think, because the demands from both sides are just so diametrically opposed and fundamentally and kind of existentially opposed as well. In looking at President Biden's $5.8 trillion budget proposal, how will Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what effect will that have on Congress addressing this? Well, what I noticed was that Republicans, certainly in Congress, said that's not enough money for the military. They were going to say that no matter what. Republicans uh, like to say that they are stronger on America's defense. Democrats reluctantly are willing to spend more on defense than in the past. Pentagon spending would go up in this White House proposal. And so I think the Ukraine war has pushed Democrats, again, thinking they reflect the American people's feeling to agree that America needs to spend more on the military. But that's not all Democrats. The so-called progressive side absolutely does not want to do that and often points out that the cost of one modern jet fighter plane would instead build lots and lots of schools in American cities. And one other thing to keep in mind, the White House budget proposal, it's just the very first step on a long road of congressional hearings and compromises. And whatever number Joe Biden put out the other day, that's not going to be the final number. I just want to highlight the number that sticks out for me here as somebody who's reported all over the African continent. And that is $5 billion that was noticeably missing from this budget. And Joe Biden talked about it yesterday. That is money intended for the U.S.'s global fight against COVID. As we know, the COVID funding, about 13 billion of it, I believe, was not approved in this budget proposal, which means that the U.S. risks serious backsliding. Now, if you want to think as like a, a military tactician, you can't fight when your population is sick. That's like number one. You can't mount a response. And I'm not even talking about when your military is well. You just can't mount a response when people are dying of a preventable disease, of a disease that we now have a vaccine for. And you can't sow goodwill around the world if you can't help others fight against this disease. You can't stop the influx of this disease because the disease doesn't get visas or passports. So this five billion out of 5.8 trillion is actually really significant and I think will have a knock-on effect in our ability to kind of continue in you know Joe Biden's sort of path towards multilateralism and aggressive diplomacy because you know we've got to be even in diplomacy fighting fit and without this COVID funding we're not going to be. How interesting that is, Anita, because here in the United States, there's a mood, a strong one that I see in, in the big cities, including where we are in Washington, D.C., of people trying to get past COVID, that the numbers of new cases are down. Officials say they're concerned that a new variant is increasing. But overall, the number of cases is down. The requirements to wear a mask are being eliminated in a lot of places. So it could well be that even the budget for foreign aid reflects this desire to at least feel that we're past COVID-19. Yeah, that's possible. But like these budgets aren't kind of a spur of the moment thing. Let me just give you an example. The U.S. is still rendering aid to Haiti 
12 years after the earthquake. This is a marathon, not a sprint in terms of global aid, this humanitarian work. So it's nice that people feel like we're over this, but we're not over this, or the world rather is not over this. And that's going to have huge effects in terms of like getting countries to ally with the United States. If they feel left out on this very fundamental thing, who's to say that they're going to vote with the United States in places that matter, like the U.N. Security Council or, you know, just stand up for the U.S. and help enforce these Russia sanctions when the U.S. is ostensibly, you know, let them down by not sending them the vaccines that they need to keep their population healthy. The Biden administration has said many times there's no such thing as vaccine diplomacy. We don't do vaccine diplomacy. But that's exactly the value of what I would call vaccine diplomacy. We do need to, both in terms of like negotiating the hard stuff like conflict, remind our allies and partners that we're also there for them in these other ways. And also here in the U.S., the FDA approved a second coronavirus booster shot for people aged 50 and older. How is the Biden administration going to convince people, as we just were talking about, who want to move on from the COVID-19 pandemic to get a second booster shot. You know, on the day that President Biden rolled up his sleeve and got his second booster, to be clear, meaning his fourth shot of the vaccine against COVID-19, he got his fourth. The administration was asked, you know, are you going to persuade Americans, because now it's authorized for age 50 plus, to get their fourth shots? And the answer from federal health officials was, we're still trying to convince people to get the third shot, the first booster. And it's quite funny because Biden realizes that the optics of this are quite important, which is why when he was asked a particularly unpleasant, difficult question about Ukraine, Russia, as the needle was going into his arm, he said, you know, I was grimacing because of the question, not because the needle hurt. It didn't hurt a bit, guys. Go get your shot. I wanted to just bring up one more point on the COVID vaccine. An independent analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation found the federal government only has enough vaccine supplies to cover 70 percent of the 65 and older group. So if this truly is accurate, are there any plans for the government to reinstate perhaps restrictions again to help reduce the spread of this new variant BA.2 subvariant of Omicron? That would be so politically unpopular that I think that would be probably a last ditch option. But yeah, I mean, anything is possible. And and the White House has said, you know, there might be other variants. There might be another surge. They're not saying that they are never going to reimpose mask mandates, that they won't rule that out. But like, that's extremely unpopular. I mean, show me one person who likes wearing a mask. In preparing for the near future and all possibilities, the White House did say Congress needs to approve more money for COVID vaccinations and testing because otherwise the money might run out. I'm not sure Congress will do it because of that mood we've been talking about. Americans wanting to at least feel COVID-19 is over. Yes, and we will have to see what develops in the coming months as people are returning more and more back to a somewhat normal life from the pandemic. And it's time now for a short break. And when we return, we'll discuss the latest developments regarding the confirmation process of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. 
Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Newsday columnist Dan Revive. Well, Senator Susan Collins of Maine said she would support Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, becoming the first Republican to back her for confirmation. So how significant is this show of support by Collins? I suppose it means that, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be denied maybe the gratification of making the tiebreak vote. At least she's going to go through without the usual pomp and argument that we've seen in this very deeply divided Congress. So it is significant. It does mean that if every Democrat sides with votes in line, which I think that they probably will, then this is a shoe in But it's just notional support because, as we know, some very prominent members of the GOP will not support her, including the senator from my home state, Ted Cruz, who asked her the perplexing question, do you agree that babies are racist? I'd love to debate that. I had a baby. I don't think she was racist at the time. That's a weird question. The reason that Republican senators were asking Judge Katanji Brown Jackson some questions that seemed out of left field, as baseball fans would say, I mean, unexpected, not attached to anything that Judge Jackson had been talking about, is that Republicans are, in fact, trying to point out that in their view, there's too much liberal thinking in schools from elementary school all the way to universities. And they're trying to sort of increase the vehemence of the debate over values in the United States. So Republicans think they can win a lot of votes in the core of the United States. There are, of course, are a lot of people who cling to old fashioned family values who don't like it, for instance, when they hear about transgender celebrities and athletes, because Republicans put it this way. Oh, increasingly men are trying to declare they're women. Women are trying to pretend or declare that they are men, and that's not healthy in society. Again, that's the Republican view, whereas overwhelmingly Democrats have a liberal view of these things. So that wasn't even about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, where she was asked by another Republican senator, right, can you define what is a woman? Well, that's what the Republicans were getting at, that in their view, and they're trying to sort of highlight this, liberal Democrats Democrats feel that anything goes. So nothing to do with Judge Jackson. And when the news came that one Republican senator, Susan Collins, will be voting yes, even without any other Republicans doing so, that almost surely means 51 to 49. But by the way, that would be the smallest majority ever to confirm an associate justice of the Supreme Court. And it shows how divided America is. If it does turn out to be 51 to 49, that's not a resounding majority for obviously a very well-qualified judge. But again, divisions are being underlined now because this November we have the midterm elections for Congress. I'd like to just make two tangential points. One is I'd like to venture a definition of a woman, which is ever-changing expectations that nobody tells you about. 
That's my definition of being a woman in modern society. Secondly, just on the transgender issue, I just did want to highlight that March 31 is the International Transgender Day of Visibility. So for our listeners, the White House is putting out a message just saying, we see you, we accept you, and who you are is who you are and deserves to be protected, which I think is a really resonant message coming from the White House. So happy International Transgender Day of Visibility, everybody. Thanks for bringing up that awareness, Anita, and looking at Jackson's nomination. Democrats are on track to hold a vote before they leave for a two-week break. The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on her nomination on Monday. That sets up the Senate to confirm her by April 8th. It doesn't appear there will be any obstacles to this. Sorry, I don't make bets in Washington. Anything could happen. I think it's now assured that Judge Jackson will be on the Supreme Court, the first black woman on the court. And certainly that is a moment of pride for the Biden administration. Very good. So we'll move on now to our last topic. The House committee said it would start contempt proceedings against Peter Navarro, a former White House advisor, and Dan Scavino Jr., a former deputy chief of staff for former President Donald Trump, and pressed its case that fundraising emails falsely asserting election fraud helped stoke the Capitol riot. The potential charges could result in jail time and a hefty fine and must be approved by a vote of the House. So in looking at this latest development, are these contempt proceedings a show of the committee's frustration with allies of former President Trump for not complying with their requests? Well, there's no question that the House committee that's looking into what happened on January 6th of last year has been frustrated that many former officials who were close to then-President Donald Trump haven't been cooperating with the committee. A few have agreed to sit down and answer questions. We understand, for instance, that the former president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who had a job in the administration, has agreed to answer questions from the committee. But that may be because Kushner will say that he doesn't know much at all about what happened on January 6th and the Trump side trying to block Congress from confirming the results of the election that Trump lost to Joe Biden. Now, when it comes to Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro, where indeed there could be contempt of Congress charges against them and they could end up uh, in jail, that really is possible. Navarro's job was mostly on trade issues, but it's emerged that he gave advice to then President Trump and others about how to block Congress from confirming the election. And as for Dan Scavino, he was pretty much in charge of the Twitter account and other social network activities of Donald Trump. And so Scavino apparently was in touch with Trump all through that day, January 6th. And just the other day, there were reports in several leading media that there's a gap in the records of what then-President Trump was doing that day, a gap of almost eight hours in the official telephone logs, as though Donald Trump didn't speak to anybody on the phone as crowds of his supporters were invading the Capitol building. We know that Trump, in fact, spoke to several members of Congress who've confirmed that, and but it's not on the official log, and so that suggests, certainly Democrats say, a cover-up. So we're still waiting for public hearings and eventually some report by the January 6th committee. The White House has been asked if they're going to help the committee track down those logs. And they said, you know, they referred it to the archives, but obviously they will follow the law and uphold the Constitution and whatnot. But as I said, the White House is keeping a very careful distance from these proceedings, which are extremely politicized. And adding to that, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, 
Jenny find themselves increasingly in the eye of an ethics storm over her repeated texts urging then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to take steps to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. So I guess in this particular case, are they looking at what did Justice Thomas know about his wife's activities and when did he know it? There is no way that the committee will question a Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas. No way. But on the other hand, his wife, Ginny Thomas, is well known as a conservative activist, and she was involved in the movement to keep Donald Trump in office, even after the election of November 2020. So Ginny Thomas is among those who said that the official results of the 2020 election were illegitimate. There was fraud by the Democrats. So did her husband, Justice Thomas, feel that way? He probably did, because there was one Supreme Court ruling on whether the January 6th Committee of House members should get some of the documents it required, and Justice Thomas was the only one of the justices who voted, no, the committee shouldn't get it. So there's one indication he does agree with his wife, Ginny. Well, that's all the time we have, so we'll end the show on that note. My thanks go to VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Newsday columnist Dan Revive. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 